You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. The frustration that we all have is that batteries don't last long enough. And we see that in our laptop computers, our cell phones. If you go back about 10 or 15 years, we all had cell phones that you could charge every two or three days, right? Now we have to charge them every chance you can get. Hey, Gary. Hey, Seth. Are you up for an experiment? All right. All right. Hop on this contraption here. Ooh, futuristic bicycle. All right. Let me get on there. Okay. I want to adjust the seat there. All right. And can you get your feet through the pedal straps? Yeah, there we go. All right. Okay. Now, if you just sort of pedal. All right. Let me get going here. All right. Now, you see what's happening, Gary? Yeah, my legs are getting tired. Oh, and that light bulb's starting to glow. Right. That's because this is a bicycle generator. It generates bicycles? Yeah, I wish. But no, it's, it's a stationary bike, right? But with this little enhancement. I've connected the flywheel from the stationary bike over to this generator here. You can buy a kit to do this, in fact, if you want to do it. And and by pedaling the wheels, you're turning the generator and producing electric energy. I'm just testing it out. But I'm also illustrating a very basic problem of our technology-driven future. Oh, and you had to test it out on me, huh? (laughs) Dance, monkey, dance. (laughs) You were handy. Let's see, how fast are you going here? Uh, Looks like about 20 miles an hour. Okay, so you're producing about mm, 50 watts of pedal energy there. That's about a fifteenth of a horsepower. Well done, Gary. Oh, thanks. <laughs> it was enough to light up this light bulb anyhow. But suppose, Gary, suppose you don't need the light right now, because after all, there's plenty of sunlight coming through the windows over there. Uh, what if you don't need the light now, but you need it after sunset? Could you just, you know, charge up a battery and store that energy? What I know, you're the one who built it. Well, it turns out that that's a trick question, because not only are batteries not included with this setup, but, by the way, you can stop pedaling now. Oh, finally, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. But, but it's, you know, it turns out that it's hard to store enough energy to make this method of producing it useful. I mean, even with a battery as big as the one in your car, it would only light this bulb for a few hours. So you had me do all that for nothing? Well, it was a good demo. See, everyone craves power. (laughs) Power is mine. Mine, I tell you. (laughs) Not when your battery gives out. It's not. There's one time I needed to submit an assignment, and there was a power outage, and my laptop ran out of battery. One time, the battery part was jammed to the laptop, so it wasn't reading the charger, so it couldn't turn on. And that's where we are today, craving energy, but frustrated by our technology for storing it. We've come to depend on batteries, and, you know, remember, they provide power, but we don't store power. We store energy. (laughs) Energy is mine. Mine, I tell you. But the trick of storing energy to power our gusto-grabbing lifestyles is it's no small one. Much of our future technology depends on it. I'm Seth Shostak, battery-powered. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, and that's containment. Here's a fact. Batteries today are not really a heck of a lot better than when Volta invented the first one in 1800. I am Alessandro Giuseppe Antonio Anastasio Volta, and today, in the year 1800, I capture electric current and quench the energy thirst of the world forever. I give you the Voltaic Pile. For all my Twitter followers out there, I just invented the battery. Cross that off my list. Well, we appreciate your hard work, Alessandro. Alessandro Giuseppe Antonio Anastasio Volta. We think of you whenever we buy a 9-volt battery. But actually, you did too good a job, Volta. 
battery technology hasn't really changed much since Napoleon crossed the Alps and invaded Italy, although we've tried. Now, imagine if batteries lasted 100 times as long as they do. Well, you'd have flashlights that work for years at a time. Electric cars would be everywhere because you wouldn't have to carry tons of batteries that limit you to a range of 100 miles or so. With that kind of battery power, you could write your dissertation on a desert island. Chapter 46, and so it is the deconstruction of Dostoevsky's masterpiece that the individual emerges. Oh, it's so great not to be interrupted. Among the, let's see, spell check bourgeois. And we don't have battery power for that. This technology matters. It's not just about giving juice to your smartphone, but in supplying energy for green technology and the world's future needs. Dan Langford has been the CEO of three different battery technology companies and is now the managing director of WavePoint Ventures. He hears your pain about the ever needing a charged battery. Dan, what is a battery? <laughs> well, a lot of us think of batteries as the most annoying thing in our lives today, particularly <laughs> as our smartphones get smarter and suck more energy out of batteries and therefore last shorter period of time between charge. But very simply stated, a battery is an electrochemical system for storing or generating electricity. And there are basically two kinds of batteries, both of which we use a lot in our daily lives. One, are, one is primary batteries, and these are batteries that are manufactured from the factory. They come fully charged. You use them, and then you throw them away, hopefully in an approved way. And then the other are what we call secondary batteries. And secondary batteries are batteries that can be recharged sometimes hundreds, sometimes thousands of time, times. And those are the batteries that you see in your cell phone. Uh, actually, that's the lead-acid battery in your car, which you use to start the car. And uh, increasingly, we've become very dependent on secondary batteries to make our world work. And that's where people get very upset with batteries because they don't last as long as they should. Okay, as a little bit of an experiment, I've put uh, objects under those two cups in front of you. I wonder if you could just lift one cup up, and as you do so, tell me what you find there. Okay. You can pick it up. <laughs> that's scary. Uh, so this looks like a secondary battery. And I'm going to guess that this is a lithium, it is, a lithium-ion battery. Okay, that came from my cell phone. Yep, and that looks like a cell phone battery. Okay, Probably so you have uh, a couple of those as a backup because that doesn't last long <laughs> enough for you. That's right, and that's one of the frustrating things. Okay, so that's in the second, hang on, hang on, you're going for the okay. second cup. Okay. But that battery there, that's part of that second group that you said. That's the a batteries, secondary battery. Okay, so the batteries that we, we recharge. Battery, right. Okay. You could probably guess what's coming. You lift up the second cup I there. I hope it's a primary battery. It is. <laughs> it's a Duracell battery, the copper top. And we're very used to seeing these. These are actually a very efficient way, actually a more efficient way of storing energy than a secondary battery. Typically, per unit of volume, these have more energy in them. The problem is once you use them, you're done with them and you throw them away. Well, this illustrates well your point that batteries are part of our everyday lives. I did not have to go far to grab those two batteries, sure. the primary and the secondary battery, the Duracell right. battery and then the lithium battery. So the idea is that batteries are becoming more and more important. And, and why is that? What's changing? Well, I think there's a number of dynamics that are driving it. One is the green revolution. Okay, and, and at WavePoint Ventures, I focus on clean tech investing. And clean tech is very much wrapped up with the whole issue of energy in a variety of different ways. Uh, one thing is we'd love to see our transportation systems become greener because they contribute to greenhouse gases. They also uh, use up uh, hydrocarbons, of which we have a limited supply. So one of the ways we're doing that is the electrification of transportation systems. And we're familiar with cars like the Toyota Prius that have been around for a while, what we would call a mild hybrid car that improves its uh, mileage by storing energy when you break the car, basically. So it's recycling energy inside the car, and that's using nickel-metal hydride batteries to do that. Today, we're seeing more and more, more electrified uh, transportation systems, so uh, all the way up to cars like the Tesla, for instance, that are all electric, and the Nissan Leaf. And these are cars that you basically plug in at your house uh, at the end of the day and let it charge up for a couple of hours, and then you can run, uh, run it for uh, quite a distance the next day. So that whole change from a transportation standpoint is very important, and that's being driven uh, by the availability of batteries, secondary batteries. You're holding up the secondary uh, I'm the up the lithium one. That's right. This isn't television. <laughs> um, secondary batteries that can be recharged. 
Another aspect of the green revolution that's, that's really dependent on batteries is the whole issue of renewable energy. Renewable energy is really things like uh, water power originally and then solar power, wind power. The problem with all of these is they're intermittent, and we like to have our energy when we want it. We want to turn the switch on and the light goes on. So part of the problem there is how do you store that energy for times when the sun doesn't shine or the wind doesn't blow? And increasingly, people are using batteries for that. It's interesting that your heading is under clean tech and green technology, because I would say those two batteries there, um, they're not from any device that would be classified as clean tech. I mean, these are disposable uh, phones, because at some point we replace them, and the other is from a recording device. These are gadgets that depend on some form of electricity, but they're certainly not part of any kind of green revolution. In fact, they may be the anti-green revolution because they create a lot of pollution on their own. Exactly. So is this not another reason why we need so Absolutely. many batteries. Portable electronics is, is, is a major driver, and we all have become addicted to our portable electronics. And in fact, uh, portable electronics is really a good way to explain one of the problems and challenges in the battery world, because the frustration that we all have is that the batteries don't last long enough. Uh, and we see that in our laptop computers, our cell phones, and it turns out in most cases, if you go back about 10 or 15 years, we all had cell phones that you could charge every two or three days, right? Now we have to charge them every day, or I have one of these really advanced smartphones that really won't last a day if you use it. You've got to charge it every chance you can get. And the problem there is that you have two different rates of innovation. In the electronics area, we have Moore's Law, which says that we're going to double processing power every 18 months or so. That's remained remarkably constant. And as a result, the functionality of portable electronics has increased many fold. We can watch TV on our phones now. We couldn't do that 10 or 15 years ago. The problem is that the rate of innovation in the battery world is substantially slower. What I use as an example of that is the fact that the most common type of battery, the type that's in your car today to start it, was first invented over 150 years ago. And that's still the most common battery technology. That's a lead acid battery. That's a lead acid battery. And lead acid batteries are very widely used today. And there have been innovations in lead acid batteries, but they're still basically the same box of dirt, as we call them in the (laughs) industry, that was invented about 150 years ago. So we should talk more about what the limiting factors are to battery storage. But coming back to the cell phone, and I think everyone who does have a cell phone or uses a a battery, a, a lithium battery, does get frustrated from an electrochemical point of view, what's happening? Why isn't it holding the charge on Monday that it did on Saturday? Well, actually, the batteries that we have today have much, much more capacity than the ones that lasted two or three days 10 years ago. The problem is that you're doing so much more with this. Uh, if you look inside most of these telephones today, these have dual-core processors, something that we didn't even have in computers, personal computers, at least 10 years ago advanced graphic processors, all kinds of radio frequency links, all of these things consume electricity. And so what's happened is we've built very powerful computers into very small form factors, and we want to carry them around with us. And the batteries have gotten better, but they haven't gotten that much better. And the result is that the runtime is substantially different. So we're asking more from them. And then on the scale of just the electron, what is happening? Do I have more electrons zipping around when my battery is working well? And then a few hours later, as everything slows down, I've I've lost electrons. But on that level, what's actually happening? Well, I like to say these are little electrochemistry sets. They're put in a package. So each one is an individual, by the way, which is interesting. It's an interesting set of problems in and of itself. But the puzzle is that you have a limited number of elements which can be put together in this electrochemistry package. You basically have an anode, a cathode, and some electrolyte that allows electrons to flow between the two. And what happens when you charge it up is you move the electrons to one side, and then they all stay there until you discharge it, and they rush over to the other side. And then you charge it up, and you move them back again. The problem is that because there are a limited number of ways you can make a battery, you can try different chemicals to make a battery. Most recently, people have looked at different kinds of nanostructures, which can be incorporated into batteries and cause them to store more energy or last longer. And it's interesting that almost anything can be made into a battery. I could make you into a battery very easily by putting an electrode on each end and uh, you know, each arm and, and measuring your charge. And, and would I feel it? Uh, no. 
No, that we would be measuring, not shocking you. But if I had to generate electricity, would would you be shocking me? No, you're generating electricity today. That's how right now. That's how your brain is running. That's how you're moving your arm and everything. So all we would be doing is measuring the electricity. Make it's, it's relatively easy to make electricity from almost any two elements. The problem is to get something that will have the characteristics that we want. Uh, sometimes we come up with these amazing battery technologies in the lab, and you'll sometimes read about them in you know, MIT Technology Review or Scientific American, things that I read all the time and enjoy. And they'll have this amazing battery, and it's going to store four times as much energy as today's lithium-ion or lithium-polymer batteries. Problem is it can only be recharged once. <laughs> And that's often the problem, or it can only be charged, recharged five times. So we look for all these characteristics. We want these things to be small. We want them to be of long life, which means two different things. One, that it'll run the electronics for a long time, but also that you can have many cycles, many charge and discharge cycles. And because these are all consumable devices, ultimately they die. And that happens when you can no longer put electricity in and it'll no longer reverse the process and therefore no longer is useful. So in a, in a nutshell, what keeps that lithium battery from running for one month straight? Uh, because the ability of the chemical compounds that make up this battery to store electrons is limited by its density of electrons and the size of the battery. So it can only store so much. There is exciting work in a variety of areas in, in batteries. A lot of it has to do with improving the performance of lithium-based batteries using nanomaterials made out of silicon or carbon nanotubes, for example, that could improve the performance characteristics. There's some very exciting work being done, what we think may be the next generation of batteries, could be a long ways away, maybe 10 years, uh, would be magnesium-based batteries. Magnesium has the potential uh, innately to have double the capacity of lithium. Dan Langford is the former CEO of three battery technology companies and a managing director at WavePoint Ventures. But hang on, we have one more question for Dan after hearing these reports of the big lithium-ion batteries that are catching fire in Boeing 787 airplanes, the cause of which is still being investigated. And this is a problem that has been encountered many times before. Meaning that lithium batteries explode and catch They're fire? They're highly volatile. Lithium is a highly volatile uh, substance. And uh, some of your listeners may, may remember a few years ago, there were some YouTube videos of people who had laptop computers on airplanes, and they burst into flames on the airplane. And while there are extensive safety mechanisms inside the lithium battery, inside your laptop and your cell phone, People need to understand that if those safety mechanisms fail, if the battery gets too hot uh, and goes into what we call thermal runaway, it can burst into flames. In fact, the FAA in the U.S. has very strict rules for shipping lithium batteries by air because of their volatility. There's rules as to which batteries can be shipped and how many can be shipped on a given airplane. So if you're using <laughs> your computer a lot and it starts to make that whirring sound? No, no, I, would, I wouldn't be concerned <laughs> about that. The conditions under which this happens are prevented effectively by the safety circuits that are built into every lithium battery by the big manufacturers. So it's become, for instance, in laptop computers, you saw this happen maybe eight years ago or seven years ago, and they would have a YouTube video occasionally, it's become unknown today because they've improved the safety mechanisms. There's nothing you can do to cause this to happen, uh, except maybe if you put a lithium battery in your pocket and maybe shorted it out with a coin or something, but then the circuitry should take over and disconnect it. Okay. So keep your batteries in one pocket and your change, your, your change. Your change in another. And, and I, I think the real thing that people can do to damage lithium batteries is fully charging them and then leaving them in a very hot environment. That won't cause a fire, but it will cause the lithium battery to be ruined. And they're expensive, so you don't want to do that. Okay, Dan Lankford, thank you for that safety tip for our batteries, our lithium batteries. You're welcome. Thanks, Dan, and I'm glad to know I don't have to put on my asbestos mucklucks when I'm using my laptop. Well, I have no trouble storing energy. I have energy to waste around my waist. Why don't we just use fat cells? It's Mother Nature's battery. Well, it turns out fat cells are not your only bodily battery backup. Find out why in a moment. Plus, get ready for shock lobster, batteries from the sea floor. And storing energy from our most powerful source, the sun. That's containment on Big Picture Science. <laughs> 
Are you earning and investing in the stock market? In real estate? How about in relationships? Are you earning and investing in your life? I'm Doc G, semi-retired hospice physician and host of the Earn and Invest podcast, where we have the 201 or next level conversations about money and life. Not only how you make money and grow it, but also how you use your wealth to create a better and more fulfilling existence. Join us every Monday and Thursday wherever you listen to fine podcasts. Okay, before we move on to batteries from the ocean, just a quick thought on fat cells as nature's battery. Yes, I prefer to think of my expanding waistline as simply adding more of nature's battery. But apparently that's evolutionarily true because these lipid love handles had an actual purpose. Well, that's right. Biochemist Jackie Stevens at least thinks so. She's from Louisiana State University. It was good for us to be able to store fat because in right in the winter, food availability was obviously reduced. So I think having an excess storage in the form of lipid would be something that could help humans survive through times when there was not substantial amounts of food. But she says our body has a secondary energy reserve as well, glucose. And you store glucose in the form of this molecule called glycogen, which is essentially just a string of glucose stuck together. But your body doesn't have a huge reservoir of that glucose in the form of glycogen. In fact, every night when you go to sleep, that glycogen gets depleted. So it's not something that could keep you running for a long time. Okay? So you miss, you know, meals for one day, your glycogen is gone. And so then you're going to move to that lipid storage. So I think having that reservoir of fat is important. Pasta, corn dogs. All right, let's get back to that point we heard earlier about generating energy from a living source, and I don't mean my fat cells. Right. Dan Langford said you could hook me or really anybody up and generate electricity. Well, any creature that has some metabolism will probably do. My name is Kevin McVitie, and I'm a grad student in chemistry at Clarkson University in upstate New York, and I'm building batteries out of lobsters. Yep, for some, this clawed crustacean is merely a dining delicacy. But for Kevin McVitie, a grad student at Clarkson University, tapping into a living organism could be the ultimate energizer battery, one that never stops. Kevin, let's get this straight. You're producing energy from a lobster, but the first thing we got to know is, does this hurt the lobster? No. What we do to cut into the lobster is we just remove a certain portion of the shell which doesn't have any nerve endings in it. So it's a very similar to just trimming your toenails or cutting your hair. Okay, and but then what do you do? I mean, that, that's not good enough. That doesn't turn them into a battery. Well, after we remove just small parts of the shell, we're able to get at the inner part of the lobster where there's no more cutting that we do. We take our electrodes, which we've prepared, and we just slowly and gently place them on the nice juicy inside of the lobster, which, you know, after he's cooked, everyone loves to get at. <laughs> All right. Now, you say electrodes. Uh, some people may not know what an electrode is, but it's just a, a, a piece of metal, right? It's a little bit more than that. It can be a little bit more than that. In our case, we have a metal, which is just carbon, and it's made into a paper. So the new advancements in science have led to being able to make flexible and very easily usable electrodes out of things like carbon nanotubes, which, put simply, are just little pieces of carbon tubes, which, when compressed, can be made of paper. And we take that paper and we immobilize enzymes on them, which, when in their correct environment, can be used to harvest energy. Okay, so essentially you're just putting wires to the inside of this lobster. I mean, carbon nanotube wires, sure, but, but they're really just wires. And, and then some sort of chemistry goes on that produces electricity. You start getting a current through these electrodes. What, what's the chemistry? What is a lobster doing to produce electricity? Well, the wires are so small that we have so many of them compressed together, it actually forms a bit of a piece of paper. It's a you know, one-inch by half-an-inch piece of paper that we lay inside. And on that paper, we've immobilized enzymes, which are these small proteins that are naturally occurring in, in bodies and people. And once they're in that state, we're able to take the glucose and the oxygen, so the sugar and the air that are naturally occurring in a lot of people's bodies, actually everyone's bodies, hopefully, uh, we can use that to produce energy. So you're really converting the sugar in this lobster into an electrical current. You're, you're converting that into electrical energy instead of just chemical energy. 
Yes, exactly. So we're taking the glucose, and it actually, the enzyme cleaves the glucose and allows us to steal a few electrons from it. And if you do that in enough times, you end up getting current because that's really just the exchange of electrons. Oh, yeah, but it sounds like <laughs> this is coming at some cost to the lobster, isn't it? I mean, you're taking out his, uh, his glucose. You're taking out his, his sugar. Does the lobster you know, suffer because of that? I mean, is it a less energetic lobster when you get done? To a certain extent, but that's not really to a level of which it's actually harmful in any case. The values at which we're taking, these electrodes are so efficient that the amount of glucose we're taking from the lobster, he doesn't even really notice. It's the difference between having a plate full of french fries and you know, sharing one with your friends. So you're not harvesting a lot of glucose from this involuntary battery. How, how much energy are we talking about? I mean, what sort of voltage are you getting out of the lobster? Because I think that many people know that most of the batteries they buy are, you know, like one and a half volts. Are you getting that much out of a lobster? Well, not really. So the way that the electrodes work, we're limited that we can only get around 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8 volts from one set of electrodes. However, we can get enough current from these that we can use microelectronics to convert some of that excess current into voltage. Okay, so oh, 0.7 volts. So maybe you could line these lobsters up, you know, wire them up in series, and then, you know, power a transistor radio. Well, we did something really similar to that. We took two lobsters and wired them together, and we were actually able to power an electric sports watch by it. <laughs> I see. Okay, but we're still talking, it sounds to me like, you know, fractions of a watt, right? Uh, yes, microwatts. Oh, microwatts. Okay, so that doesn't sound like it's terribly practical for solving the energy problems that uh, we, we talk about a lot. I mean, what is, what is the practical application here? Is there one, or are you just trying to learn more about lobster biochemistry? Well, I mean, there's definitely a solution here to an energy problem. It's just not specifically the energy problem you're thinking about. When a lot of people hear energy problem, they think we're running out of oil, which is definitely an issue. But that's not what I focus on. What I'm looking at here are really implantable medical devices. So upwards of a couple million a year, people have an operation involving a pacemaker. What we're hoping to do is replace the batteries, which are the first thing to go wrong in these pacemakers, with something that can work for as long as the person's working and harvest the energy as it's needed. So, well, that sounds uh, really of uh, some import. Now, have you tried this with humans? I, you know, it, it sounds like it doesn't hurt the lobster, so maybe it wouldn't hurt you. I mean, if, if, <laughs> if you tried making yourself into a battery, does, I mean, do you get a lot more power out of uh, humans than you would out of lobsters? Well, it's pretty comparable because we're limited to how much glucose and, or how much sugar and air the uh, electrodes can access, which is pretty comparable between what the lobster and the human is supplying. It's not so easy to do on people because I don't really have a shell that I can remove too easily to get at. However, we have done some experiments where we used human serum, which for the most part is just blood minus the red stuff, and we used that to power an actual human pacemaker. Well, finally, Kevin, have you only tried this on lobsters? I mean, I, I can understand why lobsters would be appealing. They're certainly appealing to me <laughs> when they're boiled up. But, you know, have you, have you tried this with other crustaceans or snails or something else? Yeah, exactly. You mentioned a good point there, snails. We did an initial uh, research using snails, which were, you know, up in the North Country are pretty abundant. So we were able to get a few of them and get really small amounts of energy as a starting point. But then we wanted to go a little bit further. So we moved into a new area where we took some clams and we wired them together, like you mentioned earlier, in series. The issue with snails and clams is that they're relatively small animals. So the next step we took was the lobster which is a large enough animal that we can work and get pretty high amounts of current and voltage from. Well, I follow your logic there. Obviously, the bigger the critter, the more energy you're going to get out of it. Maybe you ought to consider giant squids. Kevin McVitie, thanks so much for talking with us. I want to thank you so much for having me. Kevin McVitie is a chemistry grad student at Clarkson University in New York. Well, Seth, let's get some air. Are you up for that? No, oh, sure. Will that recharge my batteries? Ah, outdoors, the great outdoors. <laughs> the sun feels great. Yep, it's energetic too. You see that light? It's taken eight minutes to get here from the sun. And see this bright patch down here, Molly? That's uh, incoming energy at about 300 to 500 watts per square meter. Of course, it's not doing much, but heating up the pavement, but... And some of the ants on the pavement. Yeah, but they only, they only get a couple of microwatts, I think. <laughs> well, at any rate, the sun is clearly a terrific energy source. Now, turning that solar energy into electricity with a solar cell is one thing, and we can do that. Storing it, however, is trickier. Yep. It's a containment problem, if you will. And uh, this is That's Containment on Big Picture Science. 
Consider windmills. I mean, at least they work at night, but solar cells don't. It's sort of like the water company, you know, that gives you water, right? You pay for it to be pumped to your house, but if you need to hold on to some of that water because you want to heat it up for a shower in the evening, you have to have a tank. So when will we have the equivalent for solar energy, a tank, to hold significant amounts of the energy? Nate Lewis and his lab at Caltech are tackling the storage problem. He's been named the director of an innovation hub at the U.S. Department of Energy, the Joint Center for Artificial Photosynthesis. We are trying to make fuel directly from sunlight in the same way that plants do, but with fully artificial pieces that are at least 10 times more efficient, providing a fuel that we can use in our trucks, ships, cars, and airplanes. The idea is to store some of that solar energy by converting it into a fuel you can burn. Using sunlight, water, and carbon dioxide, he can store energy and retrieve it later. And if Nate Lewis's scheme to convert sunlight directly into fuel you can just pump into a vehicle is successful, well, that will change the whole energy picture. So we have to find a way to have massive storage, not just even for eight hours, because if you have a cloudy day, then it's 36 hours until the next period of sun comes up, and on and on. So it is inevitable that we're going to take the biggest energy source known to mankind, the sun, and store its energy in chemical bonds. The only question is, can we do it in a cost-effective way in the time we have before us to invent such a system? Well, you say storing energy in chemical bonds. You know, the sunlight's coming in, your apparatus is sitting there, and it's converting that sunlight into what? There are at least two cycles that can affect this storage in a sustainable fashion. One is to split water into hydrogen, gas, and oxygen, vent the oxygen into the air, carry around the hydrogen, or convert it into a carbon-neutral fuel that then you would burn with somewhere else. The other approach is to take a page out of nature, and instead of splitting water to make hydrogen and oxygen, reducing the carbon dioxide with that hydrogen in what is a true version of photosynthesis to make a reduced carbon fuel like methanol or methane or butanol that then we could either convert or use directly for the high energy density applications that we need to run the economy of the world. Well, it sounds to me, Nate, as if what you're doing is producing a, a fuel I could put in a tank, either as liquefied gas, like hydrogen gas or something, or, or methane, liquefied methane, propane, I don't know, some sort of hydrocarbon that I then just put in a very conventional sort of device like a car and drive around with it. That's exactly the idea. Biofuels are an example of fuel stored from sunlight, but they actually are very inefficient. The fastest growing plant when on an average basis over a year, day, night, and time of day, stores less than 1% of the total sunlight that hits a square meter in all the energy stored in all the fuel of a plant. And then we have to go farm it and convert it to some fuel we can use instead of that lignocellulose. So if we can instead do 10 times more efficiency, covering 10 times less area, and make a fuel that we can directly use in our energy economy, then we've obviated those two drawbacks and really have the basis for a globally scalable, sustainable, clean energy system. So you're telling me that instead of growing an acre of corn or switchgrass or something like that, you know, and then carting it off somewhere and, I don't know, doing something to it and turning it into a fuel, you're going to get 10 times as much energy out of that acre. Exactly, and in a fuel that we can use. Well, when I was back in high school... We, we did an experiment where we broke up water, for example, into hydrogen and oxygen. We did it with, you know, some, uh, some electricity, actually. We just put a battery or something. Uh, electrolysis, this was called. How does your scheme differ from electrolysis? So, actually, electrolysis is one of the key functional components of what our scheme involves. Uh, you could drive a solar-driven electrolysis with a photovoltaic array that does that exact electrolysis process, just like high school, in your basement but it would be the equivalent of 50 or 75 or $100 a gallon equivalent of gasoline to do that. Now, if instead we could merge those functions into one article of manufacture that looked essentially like bubble wrap that you would roll out on your roof and you would feed in water and into a collection tank would drip 
a liquid fuel like methanol or a gaseous fuel like hydrogen, then you would obviate all these balance of systems and making grid wires and electricity to put into this electrolyzer and really have something that humans could use to provide their stored energy whenever and wherever they needed it. And that's the beauty of mimicking photosynthesis because the plants don't have wires. They don't have batteries and run electrolyzers. They make fuel. We're going to build that same infrastructure out of different pieces, ones that are made by humans in laboratories that achieve the same function in the end. All right. Well, then how do you do it? I mean, if I were to visit your lab, Nate, what apparatus would I see that could turn water and sunlight into, into something I can burn in my car? We already know how to do this on a technical basis. There are materials, uh, minerals, like an exotic mineral called strontium titanate, uh, that if you put it in a beaker of water and shine sunlight on it, spontaneously produce hydrogen and oxygen that you can collect out in a tank and run a vehicle off of it. But there are three things you want. You want it to be cheap, you want it to be efficient, and you want it to be robust to last a long time. And right now we can give you any two of those three, but not the third at once. Well, finally, Nate, the big question. This is obviously a very important thing to do. It would really transform a lot. Are you getting close? Is this something we're going to see within, you know, the next decade or two, or is this really down the road? Well, we think that within our first five years, we're going to be like the Wright brothers and prove that this is possible to get off the ground. Nate Lewis, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Pleasure. Nate Lewis is a chemist at the California Institute of Technology. Coming up, other issues in the containment industry, an alternative to taking your fuel along for the ride on spaceships, and can force fields hold on to energy? That's containment on Big Picture Science. So this is History Uncovered, and I'm Kalina. And I'm Austin. We are the co-hosts of the show. History Uncovered is a podcast presented by All That's Interesting, where we both are writers. We cover all sorts of topics, true crime, unsolved mysteries, history, folklore, the paranormal, you name it. We've been doing this now for more than 100 episodes, covering a wide range of topics, and probably something that's bound to be interesting for everyone out there. Absolutely. And in addition to our normal episodes, we also do a history happy hour about the recent news in the world of history and archaeology, which we cover daily on the site, as well as important historical anniversaries. We also have done some special series. We've done one on the Titanic, doing one on Jack the Ripper, mm-hmm. done one about some famous UFO sightings. So if all of that sounds like something that might be interesting to you and you like having a good time, learning new things and maybe maybe laughing or just groaning <laughs> at some bad puns, check out History Uncovered everywhere you get your podcasts. Well, we try not to overdo our references to Star Trek on Big Picture Science. I mean, we keep them to fewer than five per week or something like that. But there's no denying that there's a lot of stuff in the Star Trek series that really has an analog in modern science. So There's a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, so obviously we can't help ourselves. I mean, rocket propulsion. You know, the Enterprise could go at warp speed throughout the galaxy... Of course, we don't quite know what that means. I thought it was faster than light. Well, sometimes. Some warp speed is faster than light. But, you know, if you're approaching a, an alien planet, you don't want to go faster than light. You'll sail right by it. Can't you just downshift into second gear or something? I, you know, I've never... I, I think it's an automatic. But one thing we do know, and that is that the engines of the Starship Enterprise were powered by combining matter and antimatter. And somehow this was all moderated by dilithium crystals, whatever the heck those are. It all sounds pretty nifty, but of course it's all fiction.
Now, on Battlestar Galactica, the producers used a few different exotic propulsion systems. For their Milky Way meanderings, yes. And one was Ion Drive, which just involves shooting charged particles out the back of the ship. And, and actually, that's a technology that NASA really uses. And Battlestar Galactica also had something they called inertialess drive engines. An inertialess? Yeah, somehow they, they neutralized the mass of the spacecraft, which, you know, it's good if you're on a weight loss diet. <laughs> but nobody knows what that is either. That's also <laughs> fictional. But in most cases, both ships on Battlestar Galactica and on Star Trek, they had to carry their fuel on board, however futuristic that fuel system was. Exactly. And so you need a tank. You need containment of some sort. And this is That's Containment on Big Picture Science, and we're looking at forms of energy storage. In other words, how we go about containing energy or fuel. But in the case of interstellar travel, I mean, think about it. Do you really need to take that fuel with you? There's energy and matter just hanging out between the stars, isn't there? Well, the universe is just such a fascinating place, right? There's all this stuff in it, all these crazy things, black holes, neutron stars, regular stars, planets, life. You know, how can you ever get bored thinking about this stuff? Uh, well, we're never bored. As astronomer Alex Filipenko just said, there's a lot of stuff in the universe, including what's called the interstellar medium. Now, that's a thin soup of gas and dust just hanging out between the stars, stuff that might fuel a spacecraft in flight. And if you could do that, then you wouldn't have to worry about containment. And, and the universe is filled with hydrogen gas. About 20% of our galaxy's hydrogen isn't in the stars. It's just floating around between the stars, and it's not really doing anyone any good. But it could. So why not have a rocket with a great big scoop on the front that draws in all this stuff and then uses it for fuel. Yeah, that would be like running a steam engine down the track by chopping down trees as you go. Well, it's a good idea. The question is, is it really possible? Alex, there's gas hanging out in interstellar space, mostly hydrogen. Isn't it possible that one day a rocket in flight could just scoop it up and use it for fuel in some sort of fusion reaction? Because if you could do that, then we could go anywhere in the galaxy without ever having to stop and fill her up. Yeah, that's an interesting possibility. In fact, it's one I briefly mentioned in my introductory astronomy class. The trouble with, you know, having a rocket that has all of its fuel is that you've got to accelerate all that fuel as well as the rocket. So that's very inefficient. You know, it costs huge amounts of energy. It's better to be able to gather your fuel along the way because then you don't have to carry it. You don't have to accelerate it to high speeds. So there's this interstellar medium whose average density is roughly one hydrogen atom per cubic centimeter. And if you had a big enough scoop with electromagnetic fields or something like that drawing this stuff in, you could, in principle, collect it. The trouble is, you know, the density of material out there is very low. So, for example, to, to gather one kilogram of material, your, your scoop would have to scoop up a volume about the size of the Earth. That's a huge volume. Moreover, it's not clear how you would fuse this stuff together because you can't just ram hydrogen together. First, you have to get rid of the electrons. Okay, well, if you're, if you're gathering protons, ionized hydrogen, you've already gotten rid of the electrons. So that's okay. But the, the so-called proton-proton chain, which our sun uses as its fusion reaction, is very, very inefficient it's extremely hard to get any energy out of it. I mean, the sun does it for billions of years, but it's hard to get energy out of it over a very short time scale. So you have to use um, another cycle known as the carbon-nitrogen-oxygen cycle, which more massive stars use. But it's still really hard, right? I mean, you need extreme temperatures and pressures to get stuff to fuse together. In addition to the problem of fusing the material, you have to gather it. And not only is your scoop big, but in the process of gathering material, there's a drag exerted on your spacecraft because the spacecraft is whipping through this material and uh, in the process of collecting it, that's going to slow down the, the spacecraft. So there are tremendous problems associated with this. Nevertheless, it's been proposed. In fact, um, Robert Buzzard in 1960 proposed what's called the Buzzer Ramjet, where he had this, this spacecraft with a, a giant electromagnetic scoop that would, that would collect up ionized particles from outer space and somehow you know, convert them into a propulsion system that would accelerate this thing up to very large speeds. And it's, there's nothing theoretically impossible about that. It doesn't, it doesn't break any laws of physics. But the technical problems, the technical challenges are enormous. I don't see this happening anytime in the foreseeable future. Alex Filipenko is an astronomer at the University of California at Berkeley. 
Okay, so using the galaxy as the mother of all containers to, to hold our fuel as we scoop it up into our spacecraft just might not be a practical solution for our future propulsion needs. But speculative science, which is found all throughout science fiction, has more to suggest about the subject of energy containment. Indeed. No sci-fi story worth its sodium chloride could fail to mention the ultimate containment scheme, force fields. Mr. Kyle, all phasers, commence firing. Okay, that's a scene from the original Star Trek series. Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock are... where, actually? I don't know. They're down on some godforsaken alien planet. We're in this upsurge in generated power, Captain. But they're confronting a big head. Right, and it has a force field all around this great big head, this great big cave head. Obviously, Vol is trying to reinforce this energy field. God, let's see how long he can do it. And they're trying to break through it with some sort of laser beam from this Starship Enterprise. (laughs) But do force fields like the ones in science fiction exist? Well, it would be great if they did, because maybe you could use them not only for defense, but for holding stuff, containment. Okay, but we need a better idea if these things exist, or if they could exist, these force fields. We turn to physicist Peter Williams. Peter. Yes? What the heck is a force field? Well, you know, I thought I knew. Uh, you know, we talk about force fields all the time. We usually call them something slightly different, but not the same thing as you might encounter in the movies, though. So when we talk about a force field in physics, what we mean is at any given point in space, you have a force on something, and it's pointing in a certain direction, and that's your force field. So so there really are force fields in physics. I mean, you know, gravity, magnetism, electric fields, I mean, they really do exist. Now, you may be familiar from a scene from Star Trek in which Mr. Spock and Captain Kirk watch as the Starship Enterprise fires upon this critter on some alien planet called Val. But Val's lair is being protected by a force field. Any idea what's going on there? Yeah, you know, I think that that would be really cool. I would like to have my own personal force field, but um, that aside, the sort of things you, you sort of you see in the movies are like they're like virtual walls. You know, we don't have force fields like that, but forces we were talking about before, like uh, gravity, electromagnetic field, you know, other forces uh, abound in nature. You can create effective forces. We do that sort of thing all the time in the laboratory. So it's possible to move little tiny particles around with sound, or even big particles with very intense sound. But ultimately, it's not. It's nothing magical. It's the ordinary forces that you're used to thinking about. I have to say that when I think of force fields, I'm thinking of the kind of things that could be deployed around a ship, whether it be a ship at sea or a ship in space, to deflect incoming artillery from the enemy. I mean, in principle, maybe one could really do that. They do it a lot in the movies. But, I mean, do they really do that in, in reality? Does does the Navy ever consider building, you know, I don't know, giant force field <laughs> hardware for their ships? <laughs> You know, I, I feel sure that somebody's going to write in and say that, that didn't you know that there was a DARPA challenge to do exactly that, and maybe there was. I don't. I don't know. It's hard for me to imagine how anything like that is actually possible. But if you could do it, you know, you would be doing it out of ordinary forces that we're used to. I gave examples of using sound to push things around. We can use electromagnetic field to push things around in ways that people never dreamed of, you know, ten or twenty or thirty years ago. But the problem with that is that electromagnetic disturbances have this really nasty habit of flying off into outer space at, well, the speed of light. So they're kind of hard to pin down. <laughs> okay. Uh, but when it comes to forces, we can measure them. We can make them. But force fields could also be used for containment, right? I mean, maybe you could say that the Earth is contained in its orbit around the sun by a gravitational force field, right? You know, Kind of like a bird in the cage. Well, you totally could. I mean, we don't usually use exactly that language, but, but yeah, sure, why not? I mean, I think the only thing that's different here is that when we think of force fields in physics, we think of actually a field that's extending throughout all of space. It's not, it's not confined. It's not here, but not there. But, you know, there are some exceptions. So here's an example of, you know, why in the world can't you put your hand through a table? What's going on there? Is that a force field? We don't, it's not like the force field in the movies, but in a way it actually is. I mean, the reason you can't put your hand through a table is actually a combination of two things. One is quantum mechanics, this thing called the Pauli exclusion principle, and the other is the electrostatic forces between the electrons. It's not as though the electrons in your hand touch the electrons in the table. Rather, they push each other away through their mutual repulsion. So, you know, that's kind of like a force field. It's just not very sexy. Uh, what about those electric fences for dogs? Is that a force field? 
<laughs> well, I could call those electric fences for dogs a number of different things, but force field would not be one of them. <laughs> okay. Well, now, let's imagine that we're trying to contain energy, to cage it, if you will, so that we can use it when we need it. How might we use force fields for that? Yeah, that's a great question, Seth. And you know what? People have been thinking about that for a long time and put a lot of money and effort into, salt into answering exactly that question. So, for example, in the case of... In the case of magnetically confined fusion, people have tried to contain a plasma, which is just really hot gas that's uh, ionized like the, the sun. They're trying to contain that in a vessel uh, using magnetic fields. And they're trying to get temperatures for those things that I believe are, and somebody will write and tell me I'm wrong, but something like comparable to the center of the sun. Uh, center of the sun, I should know, is something around 30 million Kelvin. probably have to look that up to make sure I got that right. But these things don't like to be contained. They like to shoot out in every single direction imaginable. So, uh, But the problem is you can't put it in a box because the box would be completely obliterated. So you got to use some other kinds of forces. And in that case, they're using forces due to uh, the magnetic fields. So finally, Peter, when somebody says to you, may the force be with you, <laughs> does that make any sense to a physicist? <laughs> Uh, well, not if we're trying to be really pedantic about it, but usually we just go with the flow on that sort of thing. Peter Williams, thanks so much for uh, such a forceful conversation. Thank you, Seth. Enjoyed it very much. Peter Williams is a force of nature, his field, physics. He works in California's Silicon Valley. Well, lots of different containment ideas from batteries to d different kinds of batteries to very speculative science and the idea of force fields. Yeah. And for the latter, I can barely contain my enthusiasm because, you know, it's interesting to note that the energy source of the future, controlled nuclear fusion, is really a problem of containment. That's the big technical problem. Can you contain your enthusiasm for lithium batteries? Uh, you know, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you shouldn't, though. It's our future is in the, these batteries, Seth. <laughs> Well, thanks to our energetic production team, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Rena Shaklesko. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to That's Containment. Now you've learned about the containment industry from us, and you can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online... Why not go to Facebook, become a fan of the program, and leave your comments there as well. If you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because, well, it's just uncontained radiative energy floating around your head, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know you like this show. generation at all, Captain. Paul is dead.